If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the last message in a series of messages entitled, Why Church? Last week, we dug into a great passage of scripture, Matthew chapter 16. Uh, We have learned in that passage how important it is for us to understand what the church is. That passage itself is foundational for a, a strong and biblical ecclesiology. Ecclesiology, that's our 25 cent word for the day. It is the theology of the church or the study of the doctrine of the church. A strong ecclesiology is necessary if we're going to have a biblical worldview. Now, last week I defined what is a worldview as a framework of ideas and beliefs from which we interpret who we are, who God is, and how we see the world in which we live. A biblical worldview understands that we live in two kingdoms. If you're a child of God, a follower of Christ, we live in two kingdoms. Obviously, there's the kingdom of God, but as we live as followers of Christ in the kingdom of God, we have to recognize that we also live and we work and play in the kingdom of the world. And in this kingdom of the world, we need a place where we can be equipped, where we're strengthened, where we're encouraged, where we are taught, where we are led and fed and guided and protected. And this is the role of the church. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus established the authority of his church. He will build his church, right? And he gives his authority to the apostles and to the ordained leaders of his church. They are given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. They have the authority to bind or make things obligatory. They have the authority to loose or make things permissible. And even the gates of Hades itself is not going to stop Jesus from completing this divine building project. In Matthew 16, as we saw last week, Jesus does not establish the office or the position of the Pope. Uh, He gives his authority to all of the apostles equally. And in the book of Acts, we see those men taking that same authority and passing it down to the elders who they ordain in the churches that they plant. And that process of passing down that authority by the laying on of hands and through the ordination process has continued through the generations to us today. Jesus in that chapter, Matthew 16, explains, and we looked at this, why it is important for us to have this authority. Jesus gives this authority for the benefit of his people and his kingdom. And there's different implications because of this. How we are to be members of his earthly kingdom and come under the authority of ordained leadership. How he gives his authority to church. For the benefit of his people and his kingdom, and as a result, 
We should be under the authority of not only the ordained leadership, we should recognize that he does this for our benefit, and he does this so that we can be accountable to men, and, to men in our church as we inter, and interact with the scriptures and we interact with life and the trials of this life. Accountable relationships and recognized authority. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus establishes it. But in our text this morning, Matthew 18, Jesus illustrates it. And what is the practical application of this authority in the church? He gives us this perfect illustration of how our growth as disciples of Christ requires the accountable relationships and the recognized authority that is found within the local church. Accountable relationships and recognized authority. Those two phrases and those two concepts have shaped the messages of this series. Let's dig into accountable relationships. In verse 15, he says, <clears throat> Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. I am so glad that Jesus starts with an illustration that never, ever happens in a local church. Right. I wish that were true, but truthfully, through my years of being in churches as a member or as a pastor, there has been more than one occasion where I have sinned against someone in my church and I have recognized that and I've had to go to them and I've had to confess my sin and ask them to forgive me. And then there's also been times through the years where I have sinned against people in my church and I didn't recognize it. I was blind to it. I was oblivious to it. And someone came to me, maybe someone in my small group or someone in the congregation came to me and said, hey, can I talk to you for a moment? And they, they carried out what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. I've been on the receiving end of it. And by the way, I've had to do this with other folks, people who have sinned against me and, and I've gone to them in order to talk to them. Now, now listen, not for every little thing. We have options here. You know, sometimes people have a bad day, right? And sometimes people are snarky because it's just a bad day and they might snap at us. And, and we have the option in that type of a situation, <clears throat> excuse me, to let it go, to give them grace, to forgive them and, let, and, and understand, you know what? Paxson's just having a bad day, all right? That's not the way Paxson normally is. Lord, be with Paxson and help him get through whatever he's going through. I have that option. You have that option whenever Paxson does this type of thing, right? <clears throat> Sorry, Paxson. But there are those times, right, <clears throat> when the sin is maybe more egregious. Or maybe that snarky response is a pattern of snarky responses over and over and over again. And this is where this passage kicks in. I appreciate that Jesus starts with this example because it's something that's very common, right? We can ignore it or we can carry out what Jesus says and we can hold that person accountable. This uh, option, this response that Jesus gives here presupposes that believers are in relationship with one another and that those relationships are deep, authentic, real relationships that are based in love for one another. In other words, it's not just a shallow acquaintance. 
Okay? He's not talking about you just going up to somebody that on the other side of the church that you don't know from Adam's house cat and calling them out for, some, you know, for driving 42 miles an hour down Emerson Road. Okay? No, these are, these are real deep relationships, love relationships, and therefore appropriate accountability is okay and is something that should be put into place. You know, last week I mentioned that the genesis of these messages and even some of the material from these messages uh, is coming from our friend Randy Pope. I called Randy and he's the pastor at Perimeter and he's preached here and he gave me permission to use whatever I wanted to use out of his series of messages, which was really gracious of him. He suggests that accountable relationships, that for accountable relationships to work in our church, some things have to be true about us. And also, some things have to be true about the biblical community of our church. If you've been here for any length of time at all, you know that biblical community and living in biblical community with one another is central to who we are. And so Randy says, if we're going to do this and we're going to have accountable relationships, there has to be some things true about us and about our biblical community. So first of all, we must understand the essence of biblical fellowship. <clears throat> now you saw that funny video earlier, and they come into the room and they cook cookies, they make cookies, and the one guy's a glutton with all the pizza. That, that video was so accurate compared to small groups that I've been in in the years, right? And, and a lot of times we think of fellowship <clears throat> as being, oh, that's the time where we, you know, we gab. We talk about the weather and we talk about you know, sports and we eat some food and we tell the latest jokes and we share the latest memes or whatever the case may be. And certainly that is an aspect of fellowship. But the scriptures give us a much clearer picture, a deeper picture of fellowship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship. This is the word koinonia, right? Uh, to the breaking of bread and the prayers and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. This word fellowship, koinonia, it's a much more important word than just shooting the breeze with one another, right? Um, Chuck Colson wrote a great book on the church called The Body. And he takes on this idea of fellowship or koinonia. And he says that koinonia literally means a communion, a participation of people together in God's grace. It describes new community in which individuals willingly covenant to share in common, to be in submission to each other, to support one another and bear one another's burdens, as Galatians 6 tells us. Biblical fellowship involves serious commitment and obligations, unconditional love that wraps its arms around someone who is hurting. Fellowship is more than that. It is also tough love that holds one fast to the truth and the pursuit of righteousness. True fellowship out of love for one another demands accountability. It's part and parcel of what fellowship actually is. So for accountable relationships to work in our church, we have to understand the essence of biblical, community, or biblical fellowship, and we have to embrace this, the importance of one anothering. 
You know, the scriptures give us a, a couple of dozen or more examples of one another. For example, we're to love one another, right? We're to pray for one another. We're to serve one another. We're to encourage one another. Um, we're to exhort one another. We are to rebuke one another. This is Matthew 18, 15. We're to confess our sins to one another. Why is this so important? Well, if you go to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, you see that two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And through, though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand the attacker. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. What, what's the wise man of Ecclesiastes getting at? If it's so true that in the physical world, life is easier, we accomplish more when we are not alone, but we are with some people or person or others who have our backs, who work with us, and we cooperate and do life together. If this is true in the physical realm, how much more true is this in the spiritual realm? When we're engaged in spiritual warfare, where we are fighting against those powerful spiritual forces and principalities and powers and authorities, we have to embrace this idea and the importance of one another, including confessing our sins to one another. And then one final thing that Randy suggests that has to be in place for accountable relationships to work in our church, he says there has to be a willingness to experience the discomfort and pain often produced by spiritual accountability within biblical community. Listen, every time I was approached or I approached someone, it was uncomfortable, right? When you go to someone and say, hey, listen, I need to ask you a question about something that, that took place. You don't know how that person's going to respond, do you? That person may, they may get angry. They may get defensive. They may push back and they may, they, may, they may hurt you. They may wound you out of anger. You don't know. They may be completely humble and just, oh my goodness. It, it can be anything between those two extremes. And, and actually, if we live in biblical community, if we live in that community and there are truly accountable relationships, there are going to be times where there is discomfort and pain. There's going to be times where it gets really tense, even in a church discipleship group. So what are we going to do when that happens? Are we going to just take our toys and go home? Oh, this group isn't for me. You know, or this church isn't for me. And go on down the road? Or do we recognize that this is actually an important step in living in authentic biblical community with one another? We actually have to have times like this. Um, Scott Peck, M. Scott Peck, uh, wrote books starting in the 1970s. He actually is credited with kind of opening up the whole genre of self-help books and psychology books and things like that that the shelves were filled with. Um, in, in the 1980s, he became a Christian. And the tone of his books changed, and he became fascinated, in fact, absolutely convinced in the importance of community both within the church and in our world at large, if we want to have a peaceful society. 
And he writes, the only antidote to pseudo-community is chaos. You see, pseudo-community happens if we avoid Matthew 18. And we just say, no, I'm not going there. Let's just, you know, let sleeping dogs lie. The person's never going to change. If we do that, what we're living in is a pseudo-community, a fake community, right? So he says the only antidote to pseudo-community is chaos, where hurts are uncovered and hostilities and wounds and everything else is revealed. You know, so much of who we are as a church and where we are going as a church hinges on accountable relationships within biblical community. We rolled out a vision to you over this last ministry year of all things new, and, and we have a, a goal that encapsulates this vision of 50 by our 50th. We, we came up with a graphic recently and had, had a graphic artist put it together that tries to put all of these elements together. It tells the, it puts before us this idea of 50 new churches, right? And, and then it puts before us the idea of, of 50 new believers and 50 new generations or families where, where parents lead their children to Christ. But also is this aspect of our vision of 50 new stories. We saw a great video a few weeks ago with, with um, Paxson and with Andrea where they told stories of what's happening in our care and in our recovery ministries. Well, listen, these things don't happen in our care and recovering ministries unless there's a healthy accountability to each other. Healthy accountability is throughout the ethos of our church. Um, uh, Brian mentioned it a few moments ago, the graphic that was put up there, right? Our, our ministry pathway is how we bring gospel restoration into people's lives, including ourselves. And there's worship and there's serve and there's reach, but there's also this idea of growing our growth as a disciple of Jesus Christ. It requires the accountable relationships of the biblical community found within a local church. But it also requires the authority of the local church to be recognized. Understand, church, that where there is no recognized authority, the relationships cannot be truly accountable. Can't happen. You'll only reach a certain level of accountability, and then it falls apart. So there's accountable relationships in this passage, and there's also the importance of recognized authority that Jesus gives us. If he does not listen, <clears throat> take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And church here is small c, church, right? He's not saying broadcast it to the universal church. He's saying within your local church, you deal with these types of situations. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as, and circle that word, underline that word, do something with that word, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What is Jesus getting at here? He is talking about something that's not necessarily exercised in many churches today, but it's known as church discipline. There are those times within the church when a member of the church lives in such a way that is scandalous sin brings shame upon the name of the church and upon the name of Jesus Christ. 
And when the person is approached, first of all, one-on-one, there's an obstinacy there. There's no repentance. And when that happens, the instructions of Jesus are for us to then go through a, a very orderly way to continue to work with this individual. And so leaders in the church will go and begin to talk and begin to exhort and to begin to counsel and to interact with the individual, encouraging them to repent. But if that church member digs his or her heels into the sand and refuses to repent, is obstinate about it, rebellious about it, and will not give up that sin, Jesus says we are to put that person outside of the church. We're to treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, we are to treat them like they are not a believer in the first place. Now, now we don't know the condition of the heart. Only God knows the condition of the heart. But certainly, if someone is refusing to repent in the face of obvious, scandalous sin, it raises the question, have they ever experienced the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? And Jesus says, treat them that way. Not to be vindictive, not to be mean and petty, not to be holier than thou and pious as if we have our act completely together. No, the reason why we do this is because we love them. And hopefully the process of being put out of the church jars them and makes them come to their senses so that they repent. Maybe they come to Christ for the first time and and they receive him as Lord and Savior. Jesus says, do this. The hope of the church church discipline is repentance. But the results are to keep the church pure from unrepentant, unacknowledged, obstinate, scandalous sin. Truly, I say to you, in verse 18, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He's reiterating the words that he said back in Matthew 16. He's saying these to all the apostles and to the descendants of the apostles. Whatever you make obligatory and in your church is obligatory from the perspective of heaven, and whatever you permit within the church and these types of matters, okay? In other words, we can't just make up rules about how we want to live our lives and say, okay, now heaven has to go along with us. That's not it at all. But in this matter of church discipline where there's unrepentant sin, when the leaders of the church come together and they make decisions, there's authority here. There's also an important implication that is in this passage. I want us to all hear it this morning, but let me preface it first by saying that my intention and what I'm about to, where I'm about to go in this message is not to guilt those of you or to wail on those of you or to you know, demean or anything, or denigrate nothing like that. Those of you who worship with us on a regular basis. You, you may even serve. You're in discipleship groups. But for one reason or another, you have decided you're not going to take that next step of discipleship and join with a local church or our church in this example. And I want you to hear me here this morning. I am glad for each and every one of you. I'm glad that you participate in our church. I'm glad that you worship. Some of you, you worship with us more faithfully than those who are actually members of our church, right? And you volunteer and you serve. And I understand, we touched on this last week, that oftentimes there's pain, there's wounds 
from your experience with churches and with Christianity that, that cause you to be hesitant to not take this step of discipleship. And I want you to understand I'm sympathetic to that. At the same time, I love you. I've, some of you have been here for years, and I love you. And you are dear to me, and so what I say to you, I say out of that sense of love as your pastor, I don't want you to miss out on blessings that God gives and that God has for those who faithfully obey him even in things that are being maybe pushed to the side in our society today. These things matter, and I want God's best for you. And so for me to not call attention to this in your life would be negligent in my calling as a pastor. So I hope you take it like that, okay? So this is so important. Understand, every believer, every one of us, we need the spiritual accountability of a church covenant. A church covenant. This means church membership. But from now on, when you hear church membership, I want you to be thinking church covenant, okay? A covenant, it is a mutual promise. A church covenant is a mutual promise that we make to our local church and our church and our church leaders and members make back to us. We saw an example of it earlier this morning when these families who came up on stage, they've been in our church from anywhere from a, a few months to even a few years, and they've gone through this, these steps of membership, and they've attended this class, and they came up and they took their vows. They are entering into a covenant with us who are already members and with the leaders of this church. Now, inevitably, the question comes up, why bother? What's the big deal? Why not just love the church and come and participate? Why do we have to have a formal covenant with each other and with the church? What's the harm in just worshiping every week? So, so let me give you an example or an illustration. Let's go back to our daughter from last week. Remember our daughter from last week? The 16-year-old daughter who was convinced that it was God's will for her to go to the sleepover with the boys and the girls in her class and the parents weren't going to be at the house and we talked about the will of God and the wisdom. Y'all remember that? Shake your head or show me that you're not, not watching Kyle on the bass tournament. Okay, all right. Y'all remember that daughter? Okay, well now she's grown up. Now she's in her 20s, well into her 20s. She's graduated from college, and she has been dating a guy by the name of Sam for quite some time, quite some time. And so one day, uh, dad and mom take daughter out to lunch, and it's inevitably going to happen at that type of a situation. Moms exert their mom universal absolute right. Kids, just get used to it. It's the right of every mother to ask this question. So, are you and Sam talking about marriage yet? Right? Moms, that's your right. Amen? There you go. Kids, just, just suck it up and take it. It's just the way it is. Okay? And so mom says, hey, is there anything? Are you guys talking about marriage yet? And, and so your daughter turns back to you and says, I am so glad that you brought this up. Um, I've been meaning to talk to you. Sam doesn't believe in marriage. Uh, he says, you know, why get married? I mean, if we get married, we have to do a prenup because I want to protect my assets in case it doesn't work out, you know? And, and that's just such an old, out-of-fashion ceremony. And so we've been talking about this, and I kind of see where he's coming from, and, and we're not going to get married. Um, I've decided I'm going to go ahead and move in with Sam, 
And uh, in time, hopefully, we're going to buy a house, and then we're going to have children, and we're going to build our entire life together. And mom, as she's fainting into her quiche, right, dad keeps his calm, and he comforts his wife, and then he says to daughter, well, well, why? Why are you not going to get married? Well, Sam has, you know, real strong feelings about this. He thinks that this whole thing is just about the antiquity of it, and it's just out of date. It's really, it's just completely irrelevant, and I think he has a point. I mean, after all, what does marriage do for you? Right? I mean, we love each other. That's all that really matters. Marriage doesn't have anything to do with true love. What's the advantage of getting up before a bunch of people and saying a bunch of little words and then going down the aisle? And all that? I mean, what's the big deal? How would you answer that question? You know, I know, by the way, some of you have had to answer that question with your children, right? What's the big deal? Obviously, the answer is multifaceted, but essentially, it comes down to making vows before God. And vows are not empty words of emotional desire. These are words of sacred, holy promise, right? And we understand this with marriage. We get married before God. We make vows to Him and before other people because we understand that this is the best hope for a deep love relationship to grow between a man and a woman in the bounds of matrimony. And we also understand because the Bible says so, right? You know, the old parent, but mom, dad, why? Because I said so. I know better than you. And, and God says, guess what? I created you. I know better than you. That's also another reason. We just don't like that reason. We didn't like it when we were kids. We don't like it when we're adults. Because the Bible says so. It's fulfilling the Scripture's commands. And of course, we understand, and we can say, listen, honey, you need this commitment to be made in front of witnesses and in front of God because I got news for you. Marriage is not all peaches and cream. There's going to be times when marriage is tough. And what keeps you in that marriage is that you took vows before God to love each other through good and bad, through sickness and in health. And sometimes the emotional fuzziness, it's gone out the window and it's been gone for quite some time. What keeps you through those tough times is that you make vows. Vows are important. Now let's tie this into the church. What does this have to do with the church? You know, what does Jesus say? Jesus says that the marriage between a, a believing man and a believing woman actually points to something that is even deeper and more intense and more mysterious, and that is his love for his church as his bride. Jesus has come he walked the earth. He lived our life that we're to live. And then he crawled up on a cross and he allowed himself to be persecuted and crucified and to die for our sins, taking on our punishment. He rose from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of God where now he advocates on our behalf. He sent us the Holy Spirit to indwell us so that we can live the Christian life. Jesus, through his example, shows us the importance of the church, how much he loves the church. Our marriages are like a little microcosm, an illustration of this commitment, right? This lifelong commitment that we have to a spouse 
in a, it's a shade, a shadow of the commitment that Jesus has for us. His love for us is so pure, so deep, so infinitely great that he will never abandon us, that he will nourish us, he will strengthen us, he will protect us and feed us and guide us and ultimately bring us before his Father as a pure bride. Jesus loves his church. And unfortunately, in, in modern evangelicalism, the church and church membership and love for the local church, it's, it's being jettisoned. It's being even denigrated. I've attended conferences for years as a pastor. And how do you manage and lead a church? How do you have a church grow? And one of the consistent, most best, basic techniques that is taught is do away with church membership. Do away with it. Listen, pastors, you got to get in touch with the way people are today, right? If you want your church to grow, you need to pattern your church according to the way people are. And people today, they want options. They want flexibility and freedom. They don't want to be tied down into something like this, church membership. That sounds an awful lot like the rationale for moving in together instead of getting married, doesn't it? I'm afraid the church of today, and maybe even many of us in here, have been more influenced by the spirit of our age than what we are comfortable acknowledging. You know, I gave you a statement last week to think on, to chew on, a statement that Randy has made on this subject, that Christianity is a covenant marriage with Jesus. Membership is a covenant marriage with the body of Christ, the church. Marriage to either without submission is a distortion of marriage. And to submit to Jesus is by necessity a submission to the word of God and to the church of God. Here's the thing, church. We cannot obey what Jesus says in Matthew 18 here in this passage, if the local church is nothing more than a loosey-goosey collection of people who get together to worship Jesus and to have their spiritual and social needs met, there's no way that the escalation of accountability that Jesus puts in this passage in the face of unrepentant sin can take place when there's no covenant between the church's people, the membership, and the church's leaders, and the church itself. How do you obey this passage without church membership? You don't even know if somebody's in your church. How do you obey this pass the passage of 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul takes what Jesus says here in Matthew 18 and gives us a vivid example of how this is to carry? How do you obey that passage without church membership? In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says, I write to you elders as a fellow elder, shepherd the people of God, shepherd your flock, he says. How do I shepherd you if I don't know if you're a member of my flock? How do I know there's that? I mean, you might just be dropping in for a spell. I, I mean, I hate to be callous about this, but do I give a bulk of my very limited time to people who I know are part of my flock or to somebody who's still dating us. That's not really a good place to put 
the church's leadership. So let me close with this from Chuck Colson and that book, The Body. Maybe it's because we simply haven't taught accountability. Or maybe it's because in today's fiercely individualistic culture, people resent being told what to do. And since we don't want to scare them off, we succumb to cultural pressures. But accountability is a hollow concept unless it is enforced. There must be teeth in a church's demand for orthodoxy and righteous behavior. That is what we call discipline. Membership in a confessing body is fundamental to the faithful Christian life. When someone is converted and thereby comes into the church universal, the first step of discipleship is membership in the church particular. For those of you who have already joined in with our church, earlier today we did a renewal of our vows. I hope that you truly see those vows as important as they actually are. And that when you said, I do, it wasn't just a reflex because the people in the aisle might think you're weird if you too didn't join in. But it is something that is integral to your health as a disciple. And for those of you who've been with us for a while and you're worshiping, again, I, I love that you're in our church. My prayer for you is that you'll deal with whatever it is that is stopping you. Maybe come and talk to me or other leaders in the church and let us help work through that together. And my prayer is that in September when we have another group of people go through membership classes that you'll take that important step of discipleship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at this passage of Scripture, these messages on the importance of the church and our lives today. Lord, I thank you for every man and woman and child in our body. Whether they're members or, or not members, every one of them you've brought here for a definite reason. This is part of your plan for their life and part of your plan for our church, and so I'm grateful for all who are a part of this church. Lord, would you make us an even tighter group of believers who exemplify and model love one another so that all men will know that you're my disciples. May people who come into the bounds of this church feel your love to such a degree that they say, I want to get in and stay with these people who model my Savior. I ask this for your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen.